The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. We've got another heat wave coming up early in the week, and higher temperatures will keep the AC units humming, a reminder of the effect the weather can bring on the energy grid. And Mike Norton's here with some news on Massachusetts emissions levels. Thanks, Sam. Well, the Baker administration late Thursday quietly released updated greenhouse gas emissions data, and it shows that emissions in 2015 were 19.2% below 1990 levels. Now, the administration touted its multifaceted approach to reducing emissions, which under the state's Global Warming Solutions Act, they must be 25% below 1990 levels by 2020. But here's the catch. In 2014, a year earlier, the state's emissions levels were 21.5% below 1990 levels. So in other words, Massachusetts lost ground between 2014 and 2015. Now, I spoke to Senator Michael Barrett, who chairs the Energy Committee, and he told us on Friday that he doesn't want people to think the horrible winter of 2015 alone was responsible for the setback. Barrett says he's pessimistic about the state meeting its 2020 goal, and he's even more pessimistic about meeting longer-term reductions. So tell us more about, uh, about Barrett's rationale here. Okay, Sam. So this is how he lays it out. He accurately points out something many of us know already. Pilgrim Nuclear Plant is closing next year, and as he says, say what you want about nuclear energy, but it's clean energy. So he sees that as a significant setback for emissions, especially since he says he expects Pilgrim's power to be replaced by electricity generated by natural gas-fired plants. The senator says the clean energy laws of 2016 and another one approved uh, just this summer, they're steps in the right direction, but he notes it will take time This is true that for that clean power from sources like hydro and offshore wind, it will take a few years for that to be added to the grid. And Barrett, who favors putting a price on carbon emissions as a way to accelerate reductions, says Trump administration's targeting of fuel emission standards is yet another higher hurdle for clean energy advocates. Now looking ahead, he predicts what he called an intense debate in the 2019-2020 session on emissions reduction strategies. If that comes to pass, it would be the third consecutive session where energy policy will be on the front burner on Beacon Hill. So this newest release is of the 2015 data. Uh, How long will it be, Mike, before we learn what impact the real cold days last winter or the real hot days this summer, what impact those have on uh, the state's emissions levels? Well, that's a good question, Sam. Uh, As we know, those had negative impacts on emission levels. But unfortunately, because of the way the state reports the data, is there is a three-year lag. So uh, when we hit this magic year of 2020, uh, when the requirement kicks in, uh, we are actually going to be reporting reporting on data from 2017. Hmm. Well, we'll just have to stay tuned. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike.
The primary elections are now just days away. The bulk of Beacon Hill lawmakers aren't facing any opposition on September 4th, but in 25 districts, there's no incumbent to run against. So, Katie Lannon, uh, some of these races will be decided on September 4th, right? That's right, Sam. As you said, there's about a quarter of the legislature where there is no incumbent running, so it's just an open seat. And of those, we're going to see 10 House races decided just in the primary. There's no one else on the ballot for the general. And those seats include three that are open right now have no representative vacant seats. And those are last held by two current senators, Nick Collins of South Boston and Brendan Crichton of Lynn. And of course, there's the vacancy that went unfilled after the death of uh, Representative Peter Cocott of Northampton. And in addition to those three, voters in the primary will pick successors among the fields of Democrats running to succeed outgoing reps Steve Kulik of Worthington, Solomon Goldstein Rose of Amherst, Corey Atkins of Concord, Jake Hoffman of Lexington, Frank Smizek of Brookline, Juana Matias of Lawrence, and Evandro Cavallo of Boston. And what about over on the uh, Senate side? So the Senate's a little different. There's four open seats, and three of those, there are Republicans in the race, so those won't be decided until November. And those are three districts up along the New Hampshire border in the Merrimack Valley, uh, the seat last held by Lowell City Manager Eileen Donahue, and then the districts of Senators Barbara Italian and Kathleen O'Connor-Ives. And then out west, it's the race for former Senator Stan Rosenberg's seat that will likely be decided in the primary. Now, most of those are running as write-in candidates, so the ballots don't really reflect the race there. There's four Democrats in that primary, Chelsea Klein, who is on the ballot, and write-ins Steve Connor, Joe Comerford, and Ryan O'Donnell, all of whom are from Northampton. Now, I caught up with those write-in candidates recently, and in addition to getting their names out, they're also trying to educate voters on the write-in process itself, how to properly proceed when some of the towns in that vast district use ballots that are counted by hand and others are machine scanned. So and one thing that's also interesting about that district and that part of the state is it's electing a whole delegation this cycle, not only a senator, but four new reps from that Western Mass area. Now, of those, it's only the race for retiring Rep. John Seibick's seat that will be contested in November. Those other three fall into that category of primary winners take it all. Goldstein Rose, Rosenberg, and... Cocott and Kulik. Wow. All right. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for the pop quiz. Senator Warren got some reaction this week when she pivoted from the alleged killing of a child by an undocumented immigrant to the subject of child separation at the border. There's an active race on the GOP side with three Republicans vying for a shot at Warren's seat this fall. Matt Murphy, how did these potential opponents use her comments? Hi, Sam, and thanks for having me again this week. You're right. Senator Warren invited a heap of criticism on herself when she went on CNN and she was asked to respond to President Trump and Vice President Pence using the murder of Molly Tibbetts, a teenager in Iowa, allegedly by an undocumented immigrant, uh, using that tragedy to call for tougher border security. And her response was to pivot to a recent visit she made to the border in Texas and how the Trump administration can't be trusted with immigration policy because it has resulted in things like the child separation uh, policy that has drawn so much uh, criticism and scrutiny. This, of course, uh, invited her Republican opponents, Rep. Jeff Deal, Beth Lindstrom, and John Kingston to all 
uh, attack and lash out against her, calling on her to apologize to the Tibbetts family. Uh, Rep Deal actually turned it into a social media ad that he launched on Friday, hearkening back to a story that people in Massachusetts will remember when uh, 23-year-old Matthew Denise was hit and killed uh, in Milford by an undocumented immigrant who was drunk driving. Warren's supporters will note that the first thing she did say when she got that question from John Berman on CNN was an expression of sympathy for Tibbetts, uh, her community, and the state of Iowa. Uh, but uh, certainly, she has given her. Certainly, she has given her uh, Republican opponents some fodder for the campaign trail, both this week and moving into the general election in September. And Warren's been doing some things recently that we might expect to see from a potential presidential candidate. Do these comments of hers this week have potential implications in that realm? Well, you raise an interesting point, and I think it's worth noting that the next day, the Boston Herald took that opportunity to explore not just the potential damage that this could do to her re-election campaign, but also what implications it would have in the first in the nation primary in Iowa, seeing as uh, the Tibbetts case was centered in Iowa. And it points to the reality that you can't talk about Senator Warren or listen to her speak without thinking both about 2018 and about 2020. She gave a major speech this week at the National Press Club in D.C. where she rolled out a big anti-corruption package of legislation that would, among other things, ban members of Congress from lobbying and require the release of tax returns by presidential candidates, something President Trump uh, infamously refused to do during the campaign. And she followed that up with the release of 10 years worth of tax returns covering her entire career in the Senate from 2007 through 2017, certainly adding fuel to the fire that she is both running for re-election and eyeing those 2020 primaries. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Sam. 15,000 pounds of trash and recycling. That's what we generate every day in the Bay State. But state officials and recycling processing centers are worried that we're trying to recycle things that really belong in the trash. The state's launched a new initiative to encourage people to recycle smart as geopolitics make recycling more costly for municipalities. Colin Young, walk us through this new state initiative and uh, what are the forces at play here? Hi, Sam. The Recycle Smart initiative launched this week aims to educate people about what can and critically cannot be recycled. The state says people often think that they're doing the right thing by trying to recycle, uh, but often end up putting items that really can't be recycled into their bins. Uh, There are two things here that are having a major effect on recycling in the Commonwealth. Uh, First is China, believe it or not. Under a new policy handed down from the Chinese government called the China National Sword, China has begun to refuse to import American recyclables because our recycling simply isn't clean enough. And that issue of cleanliness is the second uh, force at play here. Uh, And that's people trying to recycle things that really can't be recycled. Uh, That makes for more work at recycling processing centers and makes it more expensive for cities and towns to actually recycle. Uh, So as China fades from the recycling picture, that puts more pressure and costs on municipalities and creates the incentive for the state to launch this type of initiative uh, to encourage people to recycle properly. The biggest concern here, Sam, is plastic bags, shopping bags. Lots of people think that they can be recycled along with paper, bottles, and cans, but they cannot. 
those bags literally gum up the gears at recycling centers and are the number one cause of ruined recyclables. Huh. The state said that almost 95% of Massachusetts residents say they recycle on a regular basis, but about half of them mistakenly believe that plastic shopping bags can be recycled you know, along with all the other recyclables. In a consumer Q&A that was launched as part of this initiative, Sam, the state said if you use plastic shopping bags to bag your other recyclables, mm-hmm. which I hate to admit it is what I you do. do. I, I you do. You do. And for those of us who do that, the state says that, quote, all your recyclables are treated as, as trash. Oh, my word. So... If plastic bags are what have environmental officials most concerned, um, what other things are people trying to recycle that they really should just toss right into the trash can? Yeah, there's quite a list that the state put out this week. Uh, I figure, Sam, maybe we'll go through and do a little uh, little quiz for you, a little pop quiz here. Oh, Ready? Yeah? Our, oh, oh boy. So, yep. Sam, can you recycle an aluminum can? Yes. Yes, correct, you right. can. Can you recycle a plastic milk jug? I would say yes. Yes, you're correct. But state asks that you rinse it out first. Ah, mm-hmm. Anything that had food in it, they say should be uh, properly rinsed before you recycle it. All right, Sam. So uh, how about clothing? Uh, what kind of clothing? Uh, an old pair of jeans, say. I would say yes to jeans. No. No. No clothing. No, no clothing. Is to be recycled oh, in Massachusetts. All right. I've never tried it, just for the record. All right. Uh, this one uh, may not be applicable in our cases, Sam, but how about diapers? No. No, that's right. Those are dirty. Those are dirty and belong in the trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, garden hoses. Uh, no. No, correct. Cannot be recycled, even though it is plastic. Hmm. And two items, Sam, that showed up on the state's list of do not recycle that uh, I guess someone m- must have tried to recycle these at some point. Bowling balls and pizza slices. I, I would say no to both. Both. Keep those both in the trash. Yes. What are bowling balls even made out of? That's a great question. It's not recyclable. Whatever, yeah, whatever it is, it's not recyclable. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, Colin. Thanks a lot, Sam. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.